April Vokey, and you're listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. This episode is made possible by the Appalachian Mountain Club. Founded in 1876, the Appalachian Mountain Club has been supporting conservation, education, and recreation for more than 140 years. The Appalachian Mountain Club promotes the protection, enjoyment, and understanding of the mountains, forests, waters, and trails of America's Northeast and Mid-Atlantic regions. They have permanently conserved over 75,000 acres of forest land in the state of Maine, including 22,000 acres of ecological reserve. Their lands are managed for recreation, ecological protection, sustainable forestry, and scientific research. The water bodies on Appalachian Mountain Club's ownership include 34 ponds and hundreds of miles of streams. Through their fish passage work, this entire network of intact habitat has been reconnected ensuring the continuation of brook trout populations on Appalachian Mountain Club land. They offer guided fly fishing workshops at their lodges for everyone from beginners to seasoned anglers looking for a refresher course. Check them out at www.outdoors.org forward slash April. Felix Bornstein owns and operates Owen River Lodge. Located in the South Island of New Zealand, the lodge is perfectly positioned to maximize trout fishing opportunities. A regular client at his lodge, I sat down with him one morning to learn more about Felix's journey from IT professional to lodge extraordinaire. Born in Melbourne, Australia in 1960, which makes me 57 years old and feeling every day of it. (laughs) Okay. It's been a long season. My parents were uh, displaced with the Second World War. My father was Polish. My mother was Yugoslav. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So, Dad and his entire family were in, interned in the Warsaw Ghetto. And then in 1943, Dad and his father and brother, his mum hadn't survived, had passed away at that stage, uh, were shipped to Auschwitz. And um, thankfully, my father and his father and his brother were either at university doing mechanical engineering or, in my grandfather's case, was a mechanical engineer. Mm -hmm. So they were shipped to Gerlitz to the work camp and they survived the war because the Nazis fed them slightly more than nothing to keep them alive until the Russians liberated Gerlitz in 1945. My mum went to school and... When she came home, her parents had already been taken away and her uncle grabbed her and uh, they all ended up in Australia in the early 50s and my parents met 1956 in my father's hardware store. My mother's 14 years younger than my father, so my father's a dirty old man. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, he instilled um, lots of good old-fashioned virtues in me. Are they still around? No, my mum passed away in September, just gone. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's okay. It was time. And my dad, who was a lot older, passed away 12 years ago. Are you an only child? No, I have two brothers. Uh, One two years younger, another one that's 12 years younger. Did your parents fish at all? No. My father, to his dying day, could not understand. He said, so, you catch these fish and then you let them go. This is in his very heavy Polish accent. Yeah. Just could not comprehend that people would pay money 
to go catch a fish and then let it go. Did they ever come here? No. My mum was in a wheelchair. Um, she'd had multiple sclerosis since I was about 12. Well, that would make you grow up pretty fast. Yeah, it did. Okay. Now, obviously, we're in New Zealand right now and you live in New Zealand today. We'll get to that. Let's just work our way up the timeline. Sure. So you went to school in Melbourne? I did till the day I was 15. And then? I left school because I knew everything. Okay. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> and I proceeded to have a series of dead-end jobs. I was an apprentice ladies hairdresser for two years. I sold shoes and then I got into hospitality and worked for a couple of big international hotels, starting off as night porter and ended up as a night manager. This makes sense. On our way up here, I was telling my in-laws, he's the best host I've ever experienced. I mean, he's just fantastic. So that is where you got it from. Did you go back to school? No. No school at all? None whatsoever. But you're so well-spoken. Yeah, well, there's lots of different ways you can learn in life. How did you do it? Dating older women. Oh, really? Sure. You know what? That actually sounds about right. Mm-hmm. I had a, yes. Anyway. Okay. So <laughs> too, too much information, April. <laughs> okay. So bring me into your 20s. Are you still in the hospitality at that point? Uh, no. Fortunately, I got into the wonderful world of IT in 1982 when I was 22. And um, the IBM AT PC had just been launched and I got a job in a retail environment selling computers. And how long did you do that for? Uh, Well, I've never had a job longer than two years working for anybody. I am a terrible employee. Fantastic employer. Yeah. (laughs) No, I don't think so. Anyway, um, so I sold computers. I went from working in retail through to corporate and due to high staff turnover, I ended up as the corporate sales manager for an IT company. Wow. And then was disenchanted by the recruitment process and recruiters I was using to try and find IT sales staff and was arrogant or stupid or both enough to think that I could do it better. So I did. I quit work, started working from home uh, in the front bedroom of my house, thought that I would, you know, just potter along, just recruiting an occasional person and it would just be me. And two years later, turned around and I think we had 18 staff and offices in Sydney and Melbourne and with dreams and aspirations to take over the rest of the known universe. And that went along swimmingly until the dot-com bubble burst in 2001. Right. When I've never seen an industry freefall quite the way the IT did back then. So where did that leave you? Um, dreaming of fly fishing. Okay, because you were fly fishing throughout your life at this point? No, or? I, I'm actually, sorry to interrupt, I'm a bit late okay. to fly fishing. I didn't get into it until, I always have trouble working it out, but I've been fly fishing for about 25 years. I've been in New Zealand for almost 15 Okay. So, so it was halfway through my time in selling IT. A couple of friends of mine decided I would, when I'd gone into my own business, I was just a workaholic. All there was was just work and a little bit of play. And they thought that I, it was dangerous how much I was working and that I should learn how to fly fish. So three of us went off to a weekend course to learn how to fly fish. Wow. The interesting story is that Philip Weigel, who you've probably met, he taught me to fish and he told me, 
years later that of the three people that he taught that I was least likely to ever do it again. So, you know, <laughs> 25 years later, here I am in the wilderness in New Zealand, just loving it. The burst happened, obviously business went down the drain and you had dabbled in fly fishing at that point? Yep, so I'd been fly fishing for about four or five years at that stage mm -hmm. and had daydreams of running a small boutique modern spin on a fishing lodge. There's lots of really beautiful conventional wood paneled fishing lodges with, you know, smoky rooms and stuffed animals hanging around the walls everywhere. And and I thought, if you look in your room here, we could do something with some modern art mm. and light and space and so. It's absolutely beautiful. And we'll talk about the lodge in just a minute. So you, and I'm going to get personal here, does business close or do you step out? Do you sell? What happens with business at that point? So I was very fortunate. I was on the industry board of the IT Recruitment Association and one of my fellow board members who owned a, who ran a much larger IT recruitment company leaned over the boardroom table one day and asked if I was interested in selling. And six weeks later, I was sitting at home. Wow. Okay. Hmm? And wondering what you're going to do with yourself, hence... 42 years old, not enough money to retire and certainly no desire to retire. At that stage, the lodge that I used to stay at, which was Lake Rotorua Lodge, which doesn't isn't open to the public anymore, had just been sold and it went from being run by the owner to being run by managers. And there's a huge difference between the two. Big time, yeah. In terms of, you know, your commitment to just getting it done and keeping people happy. Mm -hmm. So I thought, 42, if I don't do it now, I never will. So I took a year off, came to New Zealand, spent the season fishing and looking for the ideal location for a fishing lodge. And I had two mandatory criteria. It could not be on the highway because mm. I didn't want to hear trucks mm. and it had to be on a, a trout stream. Mm. So I met with all the real estate agents in the region. Uh, taking a step back, I, I'd fished the Murchison-Nelson Lakes region. I think I did 22 trips in six years. Yeah, I'm excessive. What can <laughs> I say? <laughs> but yet it's not surprising. No, and, you know, Melbourne to Christchurch is a three-hour flight. And but it's, why not Australia? Why did you not think I'm going to start something mm, in Australia? Uh, because the best trout fishing in Australia is New Zealand. Okay, so you found this place, I'm assuming, in all those trips you came out here, and what happened? So when I, when I had that year off, I looked from down around Twizel, up the West Coast, all the way to here. I, I, I determined it had to be on the South Island. Yeah. And... In the end, if you actually get a, draw up a map and look at where we are, we have access to more rivers and more geographical regions within a 90-minute drive than anywhere else in the South Island. So it was pretty easy. And then you've also got the advantage that we've got Nelson, which is you know, a 90-minute drive and you've got great restaurants and shopping and, and health and all the other services that you need to, to run a lodge. So I... <laughs> I met with all these real estate agents or realtors. I can never say that word properly, so I'll stick to real estate agents. <laughs> okay. And gave them the two mandatory criteria and the places they showed me were just abysmal. So the season ended, winter was coming, went back to Melbourne, registered with a couple of real estate engine search engines. Mm -hmm. And this, the place that is now on River Lodge came up, which was actually listed by one of the Neanderthals that I'd wasted my time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And they didn't, he didn't think to show it to you? No, no, he didn't think it was suitable. <gasps> Why not? 
I mean, this is the most suitable fishing lodge or location for a fishing lodge I've ever seen. Oh, that's very kind of you, Abel. Um, you'd have to ask him. And yep, so looked around. Uh, I mean, I've fished the Owen many, many times and um, after a bit of haggling, bought it. And that was probably in about the end of March. And I took over at the end of May, on the 28th of May to be precise, and the builders started literally the next day. What was here before? Just a house? Yep. So what is now the main lodge building, that was the two thirds of that was was originally here. It was a a farmhouse. It was uh, 1950s construction, which is incredibly ugly. It had... Ellen. Oh, yeah. Oh, that house is so beautiful, though. Well, thank you. But it, it was incredibly ugly when I bought it. It, okay. had, it had bronze tinted aluminium windows with orange frames. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it was very special. So I had one group of builders renovating and gutting and extending the main lodge building. I had a second group of builders building the guest rooms that we're in now. And the third group, we ended up flying a couple of friends out from Australia to help the landscape architect build all the decks and hard landscaping and... Seven months later, we opened. Wow. (laughs) I was petrified. I bet you were. Now, the elephant in the room is that you are Australian in, you know, in New Zealand. And as much as, I see, I always associate the Kiwis and the Aussies as like the Canadians and the Americans. We love each other, but we love to take the piss out of each other. Did you have a hard time settling in here? Totally. I mean, I'm still given a hard time. (laughs) I mean. You know, Pete Flintoff will be guiding here in a couple of days' time, and he's always abusing me as a short little balding Aussie. <laughs> okay, got it. But what about professionally? Did it actually limit what you what your abilities were? No, because Australians have the legal right to live and work in New Zealand, as New Zealanders do in Australia. So literally, I jumped on a plane and flew out here. I needed to go through some overseas investment corporation approval because the property is on a river. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kiwis rightfully hold access to the rivers and the sea and the lake shore as um, it, it, it's it's something very intrinsic to the average Kiwi, the, the free access to the river. So if any overseas national buys a property that's on a river or the sea shore, they need to go through Overseas Investment Corporation. Oh, that's interesting. Yep. So you need to put a business case together about what you're going to do, how much money you're going to spend, how many jobs you're going to create. And that was pretty easy. But the actual thing of me living in New Zealand was simple. Uh, And then eight years later, I applied to become a New Zealand citizen. Oh. And um, so now I hold both passports. But the most important thing is I'm I'm a New Zealand tax citizen. Okay, got it. So let that be noted. He pays taxes in, in this New country. Zealand, absolutely. <laughs> Do you ever miss Australia? I miss my friends. Yeah. And I miss some parts of my previous life. But, you know, humans only remember the good things. But, uh, you know, look outside. Oh, Felix, I, I mean, I'm going to sound so ungrateful right now because I love Charles and I love the life that he's built in Manly for us. But I would give it all up tomorrow to live here. Honestly. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about fishing in New Zealand. And this is why you're a special guest for me. My first ever invite to New Zealand came from you years ago. Do you remember that? I do. And you were the first person to really put it in my head. And when I mentioned it to someone, they said, oh, the north of the South Island. And I went, well, what's the difference? It's New Zealand. I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to arrange to go to New Zealand. And I started really looking into it and realized there's a huge difference. So maybe you could educate my listeners on New Zealand as a country and and how it's broken up, if you will. Sure. So there's two main islands, the North Island and the South Island. New Zealanders are very practical people, so Mm. North and South 
works really well. <laughs> There's roughly four and a half million New Zealanders. About half a million live in Australia, so we've got four million people. Of those four million, we have three million of them living on the North Island and there's only one million on the South Island. Why? Because uh, I think the South Islands, I mean, sorry, North Islanders, but I, I far prefer the South Island. Well, you know, the North Island is pro- probably, arguably, it's the commerce part of the two mm-hmm. and the South Island is much more rural and has significant, the two largest national parks in New Zealand, one is on our border, which is Kaharangi, and the other large one is Fjordland, which is even significantly bigger. Between the two of them, I don't know the exact percentage, so I don't want to get it wrong because someone will crucify me, but it, <laughs> yeah. it, it is a significant part of the South Island is national parks. And okay. there's very few people that live here. Yeah, which is probably why I like it so much. And that's why I love it. Yeah. Where was Lord of the Rings filmed? Was that on this island? So Lord of, Lord of the Rings was filmed just about every major location in New Zealand. So every region will claim that Lord of the Rings was filmed here. <laughs> okay. But certainly parts of it were filmed literally at the end of the valley at, at, on Mount Owen. And there was parts in Golden Bay and and significant parts down central Otago. And, yeah, and there's some on, on the North Island as well. But we don't talk about the North Island. Okay, <laughs> got it. <laughs> well, what about the history of fish down here? I mean, the, there's no the trout are not indigenous to New Zealand. Absolutely not. So the brown trout were introduced via Australia from the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. They tried to bring them in directly uh, from the UK to New Zealand, and the um, this is way back in the sailing ship days, and they didn't make the journey. So in the end, they grabbed some from Australia, so from Tasmania actually. And the rainbows came from the Russia River in California. So they're steelhead genus, which is why if you looked at the Lake Tarpo fishery on the North Island, you know, they look at the lake as the sea and then they run up the Tongariro every winter. So these fish are technically, are those fish are technically sea-run fish? The rainbows? Yeah. Yep. Oh, interesting. Where do you draw the line on it being a steelhead? You're the steelhead expert. I know. My brain's ticking. I'll have to ask John McMillan about that. <laughs> okay, so let's talk specifically to where to, to this region. Um, if someone were looking at a map, where would they look to see where we're sitting right now? So we're top of the South Island, right smack in the middle, about an hour's drive from Nelson, which is the top of the South Island. And we are located right between Nelson Lakes National Park and Kaharangi National Park. The Owen Valley actually intrudes into the national park. Can you fish in the national park? Absolutely. And do you need special permitting? You need a backcountry endorsement to fish some of the rivers in the Nelson Marlborough Fishing Game Region and the West Coast Fishing now, Game Region. Is that new? Yep. So the backcountry endorsements in some of the rivers in the Nelson Lakes, Re- Nelson Marlborough Region were introduced at the beginning of this season. So the actual backcountry endorsement is free of charge. You do need a full season's license, either a, a resident license for Kiwis or a non-resident for all non-residents. Mm-hmm. Is it more expensive for non-residents? Yep. Is that a, new? Uh, it's only a small, I think it might be $30, $40 difference. So it's not a significant difference. What do, you, what do the people around here think about that? I think that if somebody was bent out of shape about paying $30 or $40 more than a local, they probably should look at some of their other costs <laughs> no, of getting to New Zealand. not those people. What do the residents think? Let me put it in a context. Being a British Columbian, mm-hmm. we charge a lot of our non-residents. I'm mm-hmm. not saying I necessarily support this, but the law is you have to pay 
per day to fish certain rivers. So Charles, for example, has to pay an extra $20 a day to fish the Bulkley. Yep. Um, so New Zealand's a bargain then. New Zealand's a major bargain. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering if the residents of New Zealand and the guides in New Zealand get bent out of shape about it. Do they think that non-residents should be paying more? Because there's a lot of non-residents around here. Yeah, it's a very contentious subject. <laughs> I know. That's why I'm asking. Uh, thank you very much. I think that there has been more pressure brought to bear by the Kiwis so that non-residents pay more, yes. And indeed, that the whole issue with the backcountry endorsement is so that fishing game can funnel that money that is allocated on your lot. So as soon as you get a backcountry endorsement, it flags the fishing game to send the licence fee to manage that fishery. Right. So unlike a lot of other countries like Australia where your fishing licence revenue just goes into consolidated revenue and then it's driving, been driven around by a parliamentarian in a five-series BMW, in New Zealand it's there to, to manage the fishery. Oh, okay. 100%. Oh, that's really refreshing. Mm-hmm. Now, you would know this because you are, are you still the head of the guide organization? I've never been the head of the guides association. <laughs> I am what a, are you? I'm on the, exe- on the executive of the guides association. Okay, let that be noted. Okay, please. <laughs> and how long have you been there for? I think five seasons now. Have you noticed any significant changes in the last five years or so? Yeah, I think that the Guides Association has really lifted their game in terms of becoming more proactive, more professional more politically savvy and engaging more with all the stakeholders, be that the local anglers who have an absolute right to, to, to fish here as well, mm-hmm. um, the overseas anglers, um, government, tourism industry. Right. So Fish and Game is a government organisation? It's a Quongo. Um, so they don't actually get any funding from government, but it was set up to manage the sports fishery and sports hunting, so um, as in bird hunting. Coming up, Felix and I dive into the specifics about fishing in New Zealand. Again, thank you to the Appalachian Mountain Club for making this episode possible. Appalachian Mountain Club's main wilderness lodges are located in the heart of the 100-mile wilderness, supporting 75,000 acres of permanently conserved forest land. The lodges offer relaxing, off-the-grid experiences with easy access to stream and pond fishing, inhabiting wild brook trout, lake trout, and landlocked salmon. These are waters that contain the historic native brook trout as it has existed since the recession of the glaciers. The fish change color throughout the seasons from almost black in winter and spring to bright orange and spotted in the summer and fall. As most of the ponds are hiking access only, they are seldom fished. For more information, go to www.outdoors.org forward slash April. Now, I think when I did some filming with Carl at some point, I was, I was receiving a lot of comments about fish and game and agriculture. Does that sound about right? There's a lot of pressure in New Zealand on the enormous increase of dairy and what that has done to the environment and the rivers. Mm-hmm. Um, and fish and game as the designated mouthpiece for New Zealand anglers um, have taken up the challenge of negotiating with the dairy industry to to fence off rivers, to look at nitrogen load and all those other topical subjects. And does the Guys Association have any sort of affiliation with that? 
The Guides Association works with all the stakeholders to increase the – to protect the fishery. Okay. All right. Well, it sounds like you guys have a pretty good system in place. Yeah, like any system, it's not perfect, but yeah, we're working on it. Do you guys have a Department of Fisheries or anything like that, like we do? Nope. That's fishing game. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And it's not government? Nope. Wow. You know what? I like that. So there is the Cawthorn Institute, and the Cawthorn Institute undertakes – the more detailed type analysis of the fishery, or more, more, the, more the environment than the fishery per se. So they would be charged with looking after the rivers and measuring nutrient load and what have you. Talk to me about the fish. Obviously, everyone wants to know about the fishing. I can honestly say that it's the best trout fishing I've ever experienced in my life on the South Island of New Zealand. Why are these fish so damn big? Okay, so... I'd say that the South Island of New Zealand has the best sighted brown trout fishery in the world. Mm-hmm. And that, so there are, there are places that there are bigger fish and there's places that have just as clear water, but there's nowhere on earth that it combines the size of the wild brown trout with the clarity of the water that we have. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, if there's lots of different theories. My theory, and I'm you know, a fourth form dropout, is <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true is that every August, September and sometimes October, we have some fairly significant rain events. Mm. And that's just when the brown fingerlies are crawling out through the gravel. And, you know, some years, an entire year's worth of recruitment of finglings dies because of the floods. So you have significantly less fish in our rivers growing. Mm. So the fish that are here get to dominate a pool get to eat more food and grow larger. Oh, well, that makes sense. Hmm. So there's the same brown trout that you'll find in Scotland or Germany or anywhere else in the world. There is only one sort of brown trout. There is no such thing as a Scottish brown or an English brown. <laughs> yeah. They're all brown trout. Now, tell me about this mouse plague. When I was here last time, there was a serious plague happening and these fish were, I mean, they were barfing up mice. It was incredible. Hmm. So in New Zealand, we have three or four genus of beech trees, depending on who you talk to. And a beech tree will seed every two, three, four, five years. So once in a blue moon, all right, <laughs> all the three or four genus of beech trees in a particular region will all flower in the same year. So it's not a whole New Zealand event. It can be literally in a couple of different valleys and that's it. So you've got all the beech trees all having lots of seed, seeds drop on the forest floor, mice being opportunistic feeders and opportunistic breeders, rather, mm. will breed up based on the amount of available food, run out of food, start swimming across the river, brown trout eats them. So a six-pound brown will become eight, nine-pound in zip time. So the thing is, these brown trout that have been gorging all night on mice, because invariably they're, they're feeding on mice at night time, during the day will take, you know, a size 16 scruffy nymph. So using a mouse pattern is not necessary. But what are you doing with the mouse patterns? Are you like stripping them wildly through the surface or? Never used a mouse pattern. I've caught, thankfully, quite a few double-digit mice feeders and they've all been on 16 bead-haired nymph. That's what you mean? Okay, so even though they're feeding on mice, they'll still take something else. Yep, that's just brown trout, opportunistic feeders. So they're not focused just on, on... Mice. No, you could certainly use a, you know a, any big black streamer at night time and strip it across, but 
you know, if you're out fishing from 8 o'clock in the morning until 5.30, 6, 6.30 at night, I don't know about you, the last thing I want to do is go out in the middle of the, when it's dark and start stripping a streamer across a, a pool. No. Well, one night when I was here a few years back, the guys were talking about going out at night and I just, yeah, no. And have you ever fished in the dark? I know, like, Charles loves it. I hate it. Yeah, I do it at least once a year and then it reminds me why I don't like doing right. it. Because you're standing there in pitch black, you're, you, you know, you, all your aspects that you normally relate to aren't there. Yeah. And invariably, there's always a tree right behind you. Yeah. So no. <laughs> or a person. Yeah. I like to see what I'm doing. Indeed. Okay. Now, talk to me about fishing here from a technique stance. You'll hear people say, oh, to fish South Island, you must have a 30-foot long leader. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? You can't have orange fly lines. Don't wear a blue shirt. Uh, well, there's reasons for most of those things. The blue mm-hmm. shirt is pretty simple. Um, bumblebees. We have lots of bumblebees on the South Island. No kidding. And they're attracted to blue. Seriously. And although bumblebees aren't aggressive in terms of unlike a European wasp, bumblebees won't go out of their way to, to bite you, but they're attracted to blue. They'll crawl in under your under around your neck and then you'll get bitten or stung by a bumblebee. Oh, God, that's not fun. So that's principally the reason why you don't wear blue. Okay. Orange fly lines, absolutely, you know. Don't use it. It has to be a camo fly line. But and if your line is landing behind the fish, yes. why does it matter? Because the fly line is up in the air and it's going backwards and forwards and brown trout, I'm, I'm, no, I'm no expert with rainbows, but certainly browns can certainly look up and they can actually look slightly behind them at the same time too. Yeah, I'd be curious to see what their peripheral vision is. Mm, that's the technical word I was searching for. It's really good. Yeah, okay. <laughs> So that's why you use dull-coloured fly line. That's why you look like a ninja wearing camo. I think a lot of people don't, they might not realise what fly fishing in New Zealand entails. So just for people listening, you basically spot this fish. Yep. So fishing for brown trout on the South Island is akin to hunting. You Mm -hmm. are walking up the river trying to spot the fish before it sees you. Right. And then getting yourself in position Using a long leader, absolutely. I mean, we typically fish with between 12 and 14 foot of leader and then two or three feet of tippet. Yeah. So it's not an urban myth. It is true. Oh, right. And I am living proof. If I can cast 14, fo- 14 or 16 foot of leader and tippet, anybody can. Okay. <laughs> what about Tenkara? Has anyone tried that down here? Yeah. Same with, um, you know. Like I'm not really that into it, but... You'd think that if you could hide in a bush, because a lot of these fish are in real tight spots. Absolutely. And just kind of dangle your fly above them. I mean, mm-hmm. would that be successful? I see no reason why not. However, it's technically illegal. What because do you mean? the fishing game regulations talk about a running line. Yeah. Tinkara, you're not using a running line. So technically, it's illegal. I'm sure that no fishing game officer <laughs> is going to bust someone from t- from fishing Tenkara, but technically it is illegal. What about fishing conventional gear? Can you fish spinners and stuff down here? Sure, but why would you? Well, that's no, sorry. I mean, I- no, we're on the same page. I mean, I, I, that would take away from it for me, but wouldn't that be just too spooky to the fish? So typically the place that you'll be successful spin fishing is going to be in those deep pools. And it's the same place that uh, you're going to strip a big, saying. ugly wet across to. Right. So let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. As a streamer angler and as a double-handed angler, mm-hmm. I do really well in the Tongariro. Mm-hmm. But come down here and it's the last thing on my mind. So, I mean, I have tried mm-hmm. several times to and, get fish on swung flies down here. And you get lots of follows. Yeah, but I can't seem to... I, I actually will admit I have not managed to land... Right. Yeah. 
a fish on a swung fly down here on the North Island. It's ridiculous, but down here I can't get one. Yeah, that's mostly rainbows though, and I don't want to cast yeah, aspersions right. on the intelligence right. of rainbows versus browns because that could you know start an international <laughs> war. But look, lots of people are successful fishing big wets. Um, it's just not something that I particularly have got into. Um, for me, it's really all about the sighted aspect of the fishing. And typically when you're fishing a big wet, you're just pushing it through with a sinking line a, a, across a pool where you know there's going to be a fish sitting on the bottom. But you're not necessarily sight fishing is what you're saying. Correct. Maybe some rain or dirty water would be more successful to a streamer angler? Absolutely. Okay. So, so maybe it's just too clear. Yep. I think slightly slightly discoloured water, streamer fishing people, because we wouldn't want to be sexist, to do particularly well. What are the questions you get from a lot of people who are coming in from out of town who are trout anglers, but trout anglers in the States? Okay. So one of the things that you also need to be aware of is we don't get those huge blister hatches that you might get in the United Kingdom or uh. in the US. So it's not as hatch driven. It's more about getting the fly 18 inches, two feet in front of that fish at the right Depth. I wondered about that. And drag-free presentation. They're the three key things. Are there hatches, though, down here? Oh, sure. I mean, you'll have mayflies and caddis popping off during the day at, at random times, especially as the weather starts to cool as we move into autumn or fall. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get reasonable mayfly hatches, but nothing compared to the huge hatches I've seen in the US or, or read about in the UK. Yeah, I wonder why not. Uh, I don't know if that's a – I mean, and, and they do, you know, further down south in central Otago, some of the rivers have, have enormous hatches. But in this region, um, we get big spinner falls on the wire hour in late summer, which we haven't been able to fish this year because the river level's just been too high, but not so much in this region. Okay, so on the subject of bugs, <laughs> when I fished the west coast, really, of the South Island, mm-hmm. why are those bugs so – Ridiculous. There's so many bugs that it's enough to keep people far, far away. Oh, you mean the sandflies? Yeah. Oh, no, we breed them. Yeah, right. We breed them and let them go to keep people away because you don't want too many people living here. It works. I mean, I, I suffer through them, but they're hell. Oh, yeah. But you don't seem to have as bad of a sandfly issue here. Bizarrely, right at the right where the lodge is located, they, we have very few sandflies and there is no real explanation as to why that is the case. You move further up the river, you can fish the top of the Owen and it the sandflies can be really quite aggressive. So it, it, it varies section of river to section of river and obviously the weather has a big impact. So the sandflies mm-hmm. are at their absolute worst just before or just after rain. So right. when it's that really, like today, really muggy, slightly overcast, slightly drizzly, it'd be sandfly hell out there. Okay, yeah, I can't wait to get out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, what go about for it. predators in New Zealand? I just love that I can go out here and not have to worry about something eating me apart from sandflies. Yeah, look, the most dangerous thing in New Zealand is a foreign tourist on the wrong side of the road. Isn't that true, though? Mm. That, on, and on, on that subject, I mean, the roads are absolutely brutal. Do you have any advice for people who are traveling here? Yep. So look at Google Maps and then add 25%. So if you think you can drive from here to Queenstown, which Google will say you can do in nine hours... You know, it's 11 hours. That's exactly what I found. And it's, I always thought it was me driving like a grandma, no, no. which I guess it is. But yeah, it, it's never on point with the GPS. And we don't have straight roads. No, you don't. And our roads are very narrow. And you've got those bridges. The one lane bridges. Yeah. And there's just this little sign where there's a big arrow and a small arrow. And you need to be sharp enough to figure out that you need to be the big arrow to have the right of way. Or be in the bigger vehicle. 
or be in the bigger vehicle. Either either works well. <laughs> you know, something that was interesting to me yesterday, in Canada, driving through very similar terrain, there'd be dead roadkill or, you know, dead deer mm-hmm. uh, everywhere. But mm-hmm. how come with all the deer you guys have, there's not that much roadkill? Uh, I think deer are sensible enough that they don't go too close to the road. We have you'll have you'll have possums on the side of the road, especially if you're driving through um, Arthur's Arthur's Pass or the Lewis Pass, as you did yesterday. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, the, the deer keep well and truly away from the road. Talk to me about waiting. Do you need to pack waiters to come here? So if you're coming here in um, late spring, summer, or early fall, absolutely not. It's the the rivers are warm enough. I mean, it is. I mean, it's a coolish day today. I'm wearing a fleece, but it's still probably early seventies mm-hmm. in terms of the outside temperature. And you know, you've got a lot more freedom and mobility if you're not wearing waders. We have sixty pair of Sims Gore-Tex G3 waders for our guests to use. Yeah, you guys are stocked up for gear here. I think we have more Sims gear than anyone on Earth, other than Sims. <laughs> What about, you know, if you're wet waiting, do you have to worry about eels? Have you ever had anyone nip by an eel? We have had one person ever nip by an eel and they actually had a cut on the, on the back of the foot because it's the blood that attracts the eels. So they had a cut. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. God. So what did the bite look like? Um, it's circular because eels don't bite to chew. They actually bite and then they twist just like an alligator does. Oh. <laughs> Are they so, a so freshwater eel? Yeah, they're, they're, they're native to New Zealand. So these eels that live in our rivers, when they come time to spawn, they go, so if there's an eel in the Owen, it'll go from the Owen to the Buller all the way out to sea, and then they, it will swim all the way to Tonga. No kidding. To spawn. <gasps> Are you allowed to keep them to eat? Mm, no. They're protected? They are. They'd be tasty, wouldn't they? You can buy eel, and we serve it occasionally here. Yeah. We actually serve it as in, in little eel balls. Oh. Deep fried. Oh, that sounds like a fritter. Yeah. Uh, you guys have also served white bait. What is white bait? So white bait is a native fish that is spawned out in sea and it then um, swims up the freshwater rivers to live its life in our rivers. Oh, it, was, it does it was, come into the into the river. Oh, yeah. That, they are the fish that were here before the trout. Wow. Are they like a galaxia? They are. Is that what they are? They are. <gasps> wow. They've got great Kiwi names, which I will not try and pronounce because I will murder it, but they are effectively <laughs> galaxia. Now, all of these Kiwi names, because I still cannot pronounce half the rivers here. Yeah. Where do they come from? Is this from the Maoris? They are indeed. Do you know anything about the history of them that you could just, some, like a brief history you could share with the listener? So Polynesian. So, um, and I think there is some discussion about where in Polynesia. Um, there's also vigorous debate about when, and that is somewhere between 800 and 2,000 years ago, depending on who you talk to. Um, and yeah, mostly spread right throughout the whole of New Zealand more heavily populated on the North Island, which makes sense, come from Polynesia. North Island is significantly warmer than the South Island. North of Auckland is subtropical. Yeah, yeah, it is. Mm. So close to Australia. Mm -hmm. Okay, now what about the saltwater fishery around here? I know that that's not part of your operation, but I've seen that on the internet anyway. Yep. And with mutual friends in Australia that it started to really pick up. Kingfish. Yeah. Mm. Is that something that you've experienced? I haven't yet. I mean, to get to Golden Bay is a two and a half hour drive each way from where we are. Okay. And the kingfish really come into their own in summer, which mm-hmm. is our busiest time. So, What are your top three questions you get for someone booking here? Apart from the usual, you know, how far of a drive, where should I fly into? Yeah. 
It really tends to be about, do I really need to have a camo fly line? Do I really need to use a longer leader? And the answer of both is yes. In terms of flies, again, um, it, it's much more about accurate drag-free presentation, two feet in front of that fish at the right depth. We use fairly traditional flies that are available all over the world. Parachute Adams, size 12 through to 18, standard Adams, blue quill, small nondescript nymphs with tungsten, dark tungsten. Can you fish more than one fly at a time on your line? Uh, I think technically you're allowed up to three. No way. Yep. So most people tend to do either dry with a, with a dropper. Um, if I'm nymph fishing, I'll fish an indicator and then I'll fish two flies. I'll have a size 16 tungsten and a, probably a size 14 or 16 caddis unweighted nymph hanging off the back of that. Okay. Uh, what about how many fish per river? Sometimes I hear people reference one fish per kilometer. Yeah. Um, so I've got about one kilometer of absolute river frontage. So if we're in Montana, you'd expect to see what three, four, five thousand fish in that same area. <laughs> in my one kilometer, there's probably ten. Wow. Mm. And that's even surprising to me. Yeah. The the one one fish per kilometer. That's certainly in some of the bigger freestone rivers where they move around a lot, where there's not a lot of structure. So um, you tend to have much lower fish density. In a river that's reasonably stable like the Owen, which has got some big structure behind it, there tends to be more fish. But it's still, you know, 10 fish in a mile is a lot of fish. Are you allowed to retain fish from here? So an angler is technically allowed to keep, and it varies on the river, uh, between one and two fish per angler per day. Oh, wow. That's actually surprising with there being such few fish. Are there any, any restrictions to size? Like if you catch one that's 20 pounds, can you, do you have to put it back or are you allowed to take it? Depends on the river. But the reality is that most foreign anglers practice catch and release. We have had, and I'd, I'd count, it's either four or five fish killed in 15 seasons. And even you know, most local most local fly fish, there's lots of easier ways to catch a fish in this world than fly fishing. Yeah. So most fly fishers, whether they're Kiwis or, or, or um, non-residents, practice catch and release. Okay, well, yeah, that's and you've got those people that talk about how catch and release is educating fish. I think you're giving trout far too much um, credit for their brain power. Well, that was my next question. And then just on a different note, you know, if, if you think about an overpopulated river, it makes sense to take fish out because then the fish get bigger. But in a situation like this where you've got maybe not as many fish, but they're so big, mm -hmm. it doesn't make sense to remove them. No. But on the educating fish, mm -hmm. do you, have you ever found that to be true? I mean, if a fish has been caught several times in, in a year. Yep. Does that make it smarter? I don't think it makes it smarter, no. What I do you think, think it makes I it? I think they become more aware of predators. Mm. So I think they're more wary, full stop. Because birds but, are predators for these guys, right? Yeah, shags. But once a fish gets to above three, four pounds, shags are pretty, you know, the shags tend to focus on the smaller, you know, half pound, one pound fish. So what are their predators? Us. That's it. Oh. And floods. And floods, right, right, right. So how long will a fish sulk for after it's been caught? Yeah, look, last week we had one that was pricked, played, dropped off right near the net and went straight back to feeding and was caught. But, you know, that's probably, it's happened three times in the, in the 14 seasons I've been open. Invariably they go and, I mean, if, if they know they've been caught, uh, even if they drop off, they'll sulk for several days at least. See, I wonder sometimes why some fish sulk for so long and why some fish are so quick to bite again. Because just this year, I had caught and lost a steelhead. Mm -hmm. And maybe 10 minutes later, Charles was fishing behind me and he caught 
my fish with my hook with yeah, my hook in its mouth. So your fish was a blonde fish. Yeah, right. But what makes a blonde fish? <laughs> right? Like why are some fish blonde and why are some fish so, you know, temperamental? <laughs> so there's two adults trying to outsmart an animal with a brain the size of a pea. <laughs> there's a lot of overthinking that goes into that. I think so. <laughs> I think a lot of it is just natural selection and reaction. There's food. I want to eat it. Is there anything that you can think of that somebody who's in North America who say they're in Montana right now mm-hmm. and they're thinking about coming to New Zealand, but oh, hell, we've got trout in Montana. I don't need to leave here. What would you say? This this really is the Mount Everest of fly fishing for trout. There's nothing like walking up a beautiful river on a you know, sunny but not too hot day, spotting a five or six pound wild brown trout, swinging in the current, coming up taking a cicada. That is a an irreplaceable experience that you'll never experience in the US. And the people are friendly. Yeah. People here, Kiwis like overseas tourists. Yeah, I've been surprised by that actually. Mm. I've been really welcomed by people. Yeah, yeah, North Americans are welcomed in New Zealand. Right. As as are any foreign national. How do you handle all the do-it-yourselfers as a lodge owner? Well, people have the right. One of the nice things about New Zealand is the egalitarian society. Um. So it is what it is. Do they have caps though? I mean, certain rivers, they only give out a certain amount of licenses and then the river doesn't get overcrowded? Um, There are a couple of rivers down in central Otago that are near Queenstown that have ballots, but that's because of the huge number of tourists and anglers that are down there. Uh, Right, yeah, it's crazy down there. Yeah, lots of people. Okay, what about lake fishing around here? Yeah, so we have two lakes, but they're glacial, so they're up to half a kilometre deep. So, you know, you walk out on the edge and you've got you know, six inches, one foot, three foot, 200 feet. Oh, yeah, no. Mm. Are there fish in it? Yeah. So just around the corner we've got Lake Rotoroa and that's got the Derville and the Sabine rivers that flow into it and then the, the Gowan flows out of it. Um, there is good fishing at the river mouth of the Derville and the Sabine and then you know, the Sabine's gorgeous river to walk up, as is the Derville. How do you guys handle Didymo? So microscopically, Didymo is in most of our rivers in this region, but thankfully, because of the amount of rain we get, um, it flushes it off the rocks. So oh. microscopically, you'll see Didy- there'll be Didymo on the Owen, but you won't actually see any of it. So it is at its worst in lake-fed streams, so the Gowan and the Upper Buller um, can get quite thick with Didymo because when the Owen might, when we have a flush here and the Owen might go up four feet, the Buller might come up four inches. Gotcha. So it hasn't got that change of velocity that actually moves things around. It spreads pretty easily, doesn't it? It does. All right. So if you're coming in from North America, make sure your boots are cleaned. So that's really important. If you're coming in from anywhere overseas, you need to declare your fishing gear. Because if you don't declare it, because they will x-ray you and they will find your fishing gear and they will smile at you and they will fine you $500, I think <laughs> it is. Right. Yeah. They're very polite. <laughs> And they're very firm. So first rule is declare all your fishing gear. Second rule is make sure your boots and your waders and obviously your line are dry and clean. If you've done that and you don't have – and don't bring in fly tying material. I see people ask me about that Mm. and I've I've heard mixed reviews on that. So if you are tying your own flies but you buy your fur and feathers from a retail store, that's fine. Right. But if you are, you know, gathering untreated flies or fur, don't bring them into New Zealand. 
Okay, well, that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Now, can I ask you something on that? It's going to make some people's stomachs upset, but I'm going to ask you anyway. I remember Charles was telling me a story. He was fishing with a friend of his on the North Island. This is your husband we're talking about. Yeah. Mm. And his friend shall remain nameless for mm. the safety of, of him. And Charles found a kitten and it has a pretty soft heart and was like, oh, you know, oh, kitty, kitty, kitty. And this friend of his walked up to the kitten and s- stomped on it yep. and killed it. Mm-hmm. Because apparently, obviously, cats are introduced and they kill all the wild birds. Is that a pretty regular mentality around here? If I see a cat on my property, I will shoot it. Okay, so it is a regular mentality. Yep, they're feral. They do devastation to the birds? They will kill anything. So if you guys just really have incredible birds, I mean, what else really inhabited New Zealand? Okay, so before European settlement, there was nothing on four legs. There was some lizards. Yeah. The only mammal was a bat. So you go through everything that's here, so the deer, pigs... Stoats, ferrets, possums have all been introduced. Oh, wow. Thankfully, there are no foxes and no snakes. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a major advantage. I thought that there was a big bird once. Wasn't there this enormous bird similar to a rhea that lived here? Yeah, a big eagle. An eagle? Yep. Yeah, so there was the there was the moa, which is uh, a, an emu-like yeah, that ostrich thing. type thing, which is twice the size. Yep. So they were they were extinct about the time of uh, Maori um, habitation of New Zealand. Yeah. Oh, that's devastating. Well, yeah. Just think how many animals that Europeans have sent to the brink of extinction mm-hmm. or further. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. So if I see a cat and you're around, just turn my head. Just tell me. I'll get my gun. Okay. I'll get right onto that. <laughs> um, is there anything else that you can think of that you'd like to add about the fishing? It, the fishing here is not easy. You know, It is technically quite challenging. And if you're the sort of person that gets a buzz out of stalking, you might only see eight, ten fish. You might only get to present to five or six, but you will... If your casting is, if you're able to cast 30 to 35 feet with a reasonable amount of accuracy, this is the place to come and get a fish of a lifetime. And to put it all into perspective, 10-pound fish are, are not everywhere. But the reality is that our average is around four, four and a half, five pound. And we have six, seven-pound fish caught every week. And you're being so modest because I've been, how many times have I been at this lodge now? Is this my third? Third time? Yep. I have seen... I have seen with my own eyes double digit fish every single time I've come here. I can't catch them, mm. but I have seen them. Yeah. So they do exist. Oh, they do. They do. And it doesn't have to be a mouse year. No, absolutely. And look, I had an email the other day, someone saying, Well, when is the next mouse year? It's like, well, it's not like the moon or the tides. Right. It just happens. Can't predict it. No. Is there anything that you would like to add or ask me? Mm, no, you're already married, so I can't ask you. <laughs> and I might be too young. <laughs> Never Edit. mind. <laughs> Edit. <laughs> thank, um, you. thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thanks for listening. 